Good morning. Well, it was this same Sunday, the last Sunday of the year, a year ago, when I I told you all the story of my worst Christmas Eve of all time. Some of you may have been here and you heard that that story. Uh, It was at a Christmas Eve party during my senior year in high school. It was supposed to be an oh holy night, but it ended up being a nightmare. As I made that fateful decision to eat one of the hottest peppers in the world. And it was at this party and and somebody dared me to take a bite out of it. It was one of these bright orange habanero peppers. And you know, there was no money attached to it, no reward. I mean, always, always the worst kind of wagers. And instead of taking just a little nibble, you know, my, my Texas pride and toughness was in question. So I bit it off completely at the stem. And it was that dumb old pride that led to a fall, a literal fall to my knees out in the backyard. I was so sick. And as I'm out there in the backyard, I look up and I ask, why God? Why me? <laughs> and if you want to hear more about that, you can, you can go back online and, and listen to it. But I thought, you know, it's Christmas time once again, so I, I should tell another self-deprecating Christmas story. <laughs> you know, these are always the best kinds of stories because it, it doesn't uh, involve other people um, it's not told at their expense, and it's always good to laugh at yourself and, and not take yourself too seriously because life, life is too short to do so. Well, it was the Christmas season a few years ago, and I was asked to officiate a wedding for a family friend, and it was this very beautiful, very formal winter wedding at a large historical, <clears throat> very traditional church in Dallas. And, and this church had, had the, you know, the long center aisle and the, the big stained glass windows and the high vaulted ceilings. And I was asked to wear one of those, those long uh, black traditional robes to, to officiate the ceremony. And just before the wedding, I'm in, in the back room and at the back of the church. And I'm there with the, the groom and the groomsmen. And, and my son, Jack, who was seven at the time, was also there. He was asked to be one of the ring bearers. And Jack comes up to me and says, Daddy, I, my tummy hurts. You know, I'm not, I'm not feeling very well. So I quickly take him to the bathroom and, you know, all seems okay. And, and I say, son, you know, let's pray about this. And, and, and I begin to pray, God, help Jack get through this ceremony. Help him to get all the way down that long, never-ending center aisle and then make it back to his seat okay. Please, don't let us leave a lasting impression on this couple's wedding video you know, of my son you know, getting sick as, as hundreds of people are, are watching. It, you know, it was a very simple prayer. And <laughs> praise the Lord, Jack got through the, cer- the ceremony fine. And, but I, afterwards, he's still not feeling great, but I just say, okay, well, you know, let's go to this 
reception just for a little while and, you know, Jack, just take it easy, you know, have a little seven up, you know, no crazy line dancing, just, just, just take things slow and, and we should be okay. And we get to the reception, it's in this huge, luxurious ballroom in downtown Dallas, very nice, you know, live band, great, great food, and, and um, we're sitting there at the table, and then I look over at Jack, and his face has suddenly turned pale, and I think, okay, and he says again, Daddy, I'm not, I'm not feeling so well again, so I say, okay, okay, let's, 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 let's just run to the bathroom, and so we, we exit the ballroom, and we, we find somebody in, in the hall, and I ask him, okay, where's the nearest men's room? And he says, all the way down at the end of that hallway, you know, another long walkway. And um, in my mind, I try to calculate the distance to the bathroom, you know, divide that by the color of my son's face, and I, I'm not feeling so great about our chances of getting there in time. So we begin to run, you know, in our, in our slippery dress shoes, and, and we're making our way down, and Suddenly, Jack is starting to lose it. And I think, okay, maybe if I could just, as we're running, just try to, maybe just try to trap it in my hand as, as we're running. And, you know, it seemed to work okay initially, but, and we're getting closer, you know, 10 yards, five yards. But then I can no longer restrain the comet that is propelling us down this hallway. And... It finally stops. It's all over. And I look over and I see there are the bathroom doors. And right across from the bathroom are the large double doors of the kitchen. And <clears throat> my thought is, well, man, I feel sorry for this tux rental store that's going to have to take back these tuxes tomorrow. But as I'm thinking that, somebody comes around the corner. And it's this lady wearing this, this nice formal pantsuit. I mean, she must have been kind of the kitchen supervisor. And she's got the earpiece to communicate to her staff. And she's, you know, in high heels. And, and she turns the corner into the walkway. And before we could warn her, she walks right into where Jack has just got sick. And her feet totally come out from under her. And if that wasn't bad enough, she was carrying this large serving tray with all of these ceramic bowls of salad. And as these bowls of lettuce go flying into the air in slow motion is what it felt like, I, I think this cannot be happening. You know, this happens in those, those awkward comedies, you know, where, where everything that does go wrong or can go wrong does go wrong. And... Right as I'm thinking that, these bowls begin to hit this marble floor and shatter everywhere. I want to yell, no. I want to run. I want to shield my face from this lettuce, you know, that's flying at us. But it's too late. And we're just standing there in shock. I, you know, I, I snap out of it uh, because in my amazement, I, you know, through the lettuce kind of flying everywhere, I see that this lady has somehow kept her balance. She, I don't know, maybe some Pilates training or something, but she is in this scissor-like splits position, just hovering there. You know, she's lost one of her high-heeled shoes. 
And she begins to yell, who did this here? Who did this? I mean, she's wanting to probably fire, you know, somebody on the wait staff. And we, we did what any honorable person would do. You know, we, we did. <laughs> yeah, you stole my line. We, yeah, we ran and hid. No, just kidding. We, we just said, you know, that was us. We did that. My son got sick, and that's what happened. And I am so, so sorry. And, and she kind of, you know, she settled down and, and, and said, oh, okay, there's no problem. But I think life has its moments like that. Moments where you wish you could just run away and hide. Moments that can humble us. Experiences that are, are so embarrassing and, and mortifying that they bring us to tears. Moments that are awkward that hopefully we can look back on years later maybe and, and laugh. Maybe as you look back on this, this year, 2013, there were some of those kinds of moments for you. Times where you messed up, times where you slipped up or fell down. You know, it might have been an accident like what, like what happened at the wedding or it could have been a bad choice like when I ate that pepper. You know, we, we can laugh about some of these things, but there may have been some choices that you made in this last year that were no laughing matter something more serious, perhaps a sinful decision, perhaps a departure from God's will, possibly a hurt that you have caused or a broken relationship that you were responsible for or partly responsible for, something that you wish you could take back and do over because you see the damage uh, that your behavior and that your words have caused. But that's what I love about the new year. It's a time of, of second chances. We know from Lamentations 3 that with God, his mercies are new every morning. And each new year has that promise of new beginnings with God. If we aren't where we want to be in our spiritual walk with Christ, we can get right with him and spend more time with the Lord in prayer and in worship and in his word. If we aren't where we want to be when it comes to how we spend our time and our resources, we can take steps to improve in that area. If we've messed up with God or, or with a spouse or a family member, we can confess that to God and seek his forgiveness and, and look to him for that clean slate in our hearts and ask him to mature us and refine us in these areas. Sometimes at the end of the year, we can look back and, and realize that we may have lost some spiritual footing. We may have lost our way a bit. Perhaps we have lost sight of what it means to really live. Many think really living means gaining material wealth, influence, popularity, power, trying to reach those worldly standards of success that always seem to be just out of reach and never quite fulfilling. But what does the Bible say about really living? I want us to look at five ways this morning from 1 Thessalonians 3 on how we can really live 
in the new year. First, we really live by standing firm in our faith. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 3, 8, for now we really live if you stand firm in your faith. Let me provide just, just a little bit of context on this section of scripture. The apostle Paul had a strong desire to make another visit to these Thessalonians. Paul had first visited these folks during his second missionary journey with Silas and Timothy. He had shared the gospel with them and, and now he wanted to go back to encourage these believers who are making good progress in their new faith. We read in 1 Thessalonians 2.18 that more than once Paul wanted to get back and see them again. But it says that Satan hindered Paul from returning. So Paul instead sends Timothy in chapter 3, verse 2. Timothy was a young man that Paul had discipled and trained. And in verse 2 of chapter 3, Timothy is described as a brother and not just Paul's fellow worker, but God's fellow worker and the gospel. These Thessalonians were, were experiencing some persecution. And Timothy was sent not only to encourage them, but to remind them that trials can be normal for the believer. Most of us are very aware of this. The Christian life, although a rewarding one, can be a very difficult one at times. Either we are in the midst of a trial or we have just come out of one or God is perhaps preparing our heart for one that is just around the corner. But still, sometimes trials can, can sneak up on us. We don't see them coming and we step into them and we stagger and we are on the verge of losing our footing and we wonder, will our faith stand strong? Will it endure? Will we be able to get back up and keep walking in step with Christ? In verse 5, Paul says, I wanted to find out how you were doing. You know, I was hoping that you were standing firm in your faith. Suffering can be the quickest path to spiritual maturity. But Paul was fearful that the enemy, Satan, had tempted these Thessalonians to doubt God's goodness and to give in to discouragement and despair. This verse reminds us that the enemy, Satan, is, is very real and he is not to be taken lightly. He is not to be given more authority and power than he actually has, but he's still a worthy opponent. He can't take away the believer's salvation, but he can render the believer ineffective with his lies and tempt us to trip up and fall away when we face hard times. And so the threat of this worried Paul, but his anxiety was put to rest when Timothy returns to Paul with an encouraging report, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. When Satan tried to come in and deceive these young believers, they held their ground. They didn't falter. 
they stood firm in their faith. Sometimes we find ourselves on, on slippery ground, you know, like the lady with the salad bowls. You know, we're tempted to sin. And to give in could mean a disastrous fall, one in which relationships could shatter around us. But if we turn to God, if we yield our lives to him and look to his word and cry out to him in dependence and seek his righteousness and his purity, then by grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we will find a sure footing in Christ. We just had our fifth child last month, a little girl, Mary Grace, and she has just been just an incredible, beautiful gift from God. And she's sitting right back there. And just like our other children. And although they are all still young, I know a day is coming sooner than later when we will have to launch them out to this world, drop them off at college. And if you have, you're out there and you have been there, you've done that. Paul is feeling somewhat like a parent in that kind of situation. He is hoping and praying that his spiritual children will be equipped to face the challenges of life. We can nurture our kids and instruct them and provide them a foundation in God's word. We can model grace and love and what it means to follow after Christ. But there will come that day when we have to let go and pray and trust that the foundation that we have established is solid enough so that they will be able to stand strong on their own two feet and on their own faith when they are faced with the temptations and the trials and the tribulations of life. So for Paul to really live was to see these believers standing firm in their walk with the Lord. Number two, we really live by being joyous, thankful people. Verse 9, for what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? God was enabling these people to stand firm, and for this, Paul gave thanks. It's obvious when you meet consistently thankful people. They always seem to be content. They always seem to see the the best out of life and the best in others and always have that glass half full mentality. The believer in Christ can find what the discontented person always searches for but never finds, and that is satisfaction and rest and peace in his soul. So I'm convinced that believers should be the most gracious and content and thankful people on the planet. Bill Bright, the the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, went to be with the Lord in 2003, 10 years ago. And when Bill's widow was asked how she was doing in the days following the loss of her husband, she said, I know Bill is rejoicing in heaven, so I choose to rejoice here. I believe it is more honoring to God to have it that way. 
I've learned that so much is determined by attitude. I could dwell on my loss and end up depressed and discouraged, but I choose not to do that. I believe the Lord put a song in my heart with such gratitude for all that we have experienced. 54 years, six months, and 20 days is a long time to live together. We reminded each other of that every day. Every day after 50 years was just icing on the cake. Through his death on the cross and taking the punishment of sin and death that we deserved, Jesus provided a way for us to have a relationship with God and that gift of eternal life if we place our faith in him alone. If we trust in Jesus Christ today, every day after this one will be just icing on the cake because we have that assurance of knowing where we are headed in the life to come. So knowing that and having that assurance of eternal life should fill us with great joy and wake us up each day with a word of praise and thanks. We will not always feel happy. This time of year, you know, the holidays can, can be a very difficult time for many. We will not always feel happy. But our joy, our gratitude can still be present despite how we are feeling because of what Christ has done for us. Number three, we really live by being devoted to prayer and worship and the spiritual well-being of others. Verse 10, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and complete what is lacking in your faith. Paul says that he prayed night and day. This doesn't mean that Paul prayed, you know, once in the morning and, and once in the evening, nor does it mean that he did nothing else but pray all day. But it refers to a regular discipline of prayer. And how did he pray? It says, most earnestly. He prayed with frequency and intensity. He prayed consistently night and day that God would give him the opportunity to return to these Thessalonians and complete what was lacking in their faith. That word complete is a word used for mending nets and setting broken bones. There was still some setting of spiritual bones that needed to take place in these immature believers. And Paul hoped to get back to them in order to equip and, and mend what was missing. There's always something that God is needing to do in us to shape us more and more like Christ. As one pastor put it, room for, room for improvement is the largest room in the world. None of us have arrived. And none of us will arrive until that day when Jesus arrives again. And until then, we must pray. We must ask God to make us more and more like Jesus. 
We must worship him more, seek his face more in order to know him. It was interesting reading about the, the prayer life of the pastor and author A.W. Tozier. Tozier's regular habit was to sprawl out on his study floor face down and worship God. Often he would lie there in silent, wordless worship, usually oblivious to his surroundings. It's that spirit of prayer and worship that God desires from us because it brings glory to him. It refreshes our soul and helps us to refocus that eternal perspective that we need in this life. It helps us to fall out of love with the things of this world that we sometimes cling to and rekindle that joy found in knowing him. For it's through worship, worship of our God and his greatness that we gain a deeper sense of our own smallness. We acknowledge our brokenness and the need to repent or, or turn from our sin and turn to Jesus. The style in which we worship is not the issue. The issue is meeting with Jesus through personal, through corporate worship and prayer and serving one another and using our spiritual gifts for the benefit of the body of Christ and coming away from this time feeling renewed and refreshed having just met with Jesus. So we really live by leading a consistent lifestyle of prayer and worship. Number four, we really live by overflowing a supernatural love for one another. Verses 11 and 12. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. Paul addresses two members of the Godhead in these verses, God the Father and the Lord Jesus, God the Son, two members of the Trinity. You know, I had a, I had a few Jehovah's Witnesses ring my doorbell yesterday. And the husband and wife, you know, begin talking about their literature, the Watchtower magazine, and, and how it addresses what God says about current events. And, but I real quickly just cut to the chase and I say, folks, you know, I, I know that you guys are Jehovah's Witnesses and I love y'all, appreciate you guys, um, but there are some big differences between you and me and the greatest one and something that I can't put aside and that is my view of God, my belief in the Trinity, a triune God which you don't believe in. The God that I serve is God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. So we can talk all, all you want about, about current events, but this is one foundation of the Christian faith that is a non-negotiable for me, and I can't look past. Here, Paul prays that God the Father, God the Son, the triune God, the Spirit, would clear the way so that he and his fellow missionaries could return to Thessalonica. Paul also prayed that the Thessalonians' love for one another would not just increase, 
but overflow. Genuine Christian love is that one thing which cannot be too excessive in the life of a believer. But notice that it was going to be the Lord, not man, who would cause that love to well up from within. This is a godly, agape love here in verse 12. And it's this love, the love of God, that can sustain us when we slip up in this life Leaning on his love and his grace can keep us from falling. Psalm 94, 18 says, If I should say my foot has slipped, your loving kindness, O Lord, will hold me up. Often when trials come, people tend to build walls and, and shut themselves off from others. But I've found in my own life when, when I am discouraged or, or broken or, or suffering, instead of setting up walls, I need to build bridges. I need to first build a bridge vertically to God and, and spend time with him and draw closer to him and then build bridges to others, to, to you all in the body of Christ. And I find that ministering love to others brings ministry to me. But it's from the Lord. It's asking God to fill my heart with his love to the point where it runs over the brim and overflows into the lives of others. And finally, number five, we really live by pursuing a life of holiness before God. Verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul continues in his prayer and he prays that God would strengthen them and that they would be found above reproach and holy when the Lord Jesus returns. And we must pray that same prayer, that God would strengthen us in our faith and that we would be not perfect, but separated to God and holy in our hearts and our habits as the soldier has to train physically to be ready to face a moral and physically evil world. So we need to also be prayed up and spiritually prepared for the spiritual battle that we face against evil. We need to abide in his word daily so that we will also be ready to stand firm and to do what is right as we follow in his will for our lives. Paul writes later on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, that it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. He later writes in that same chapter in verse 7, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Unfortunately, we have seen far too many pastors and ministry leaders in the evangelical community slip up and fall due to moral failure. Whether it's from an affair or an addiction or some other sinful pursuit, so guardrails must be put in place in our lives. 
or we may not just slip, but we may plummet and see everything shatter around us. We can't leave our hearts open for the enemy to work and allow temptation to take root because one day after slowly fading and slipping down that slope, we might find ourselves in a sin free fall and hit that place of rock bottom ruin. We are weak in our flesh, but God can give us strength in our weakness. Pastor Craig Groeschel writes, our spiritual enemy specializes in making strong men weak, but God is in the business of making weak men strong. So we must never become too comfortable, too complacent in the spiritual life. Don't ever let spiritual apathy set in. Expect opposition so when it comes, you are not caught off guard, but you are ready with his word and then by his grace, by the name of Jesus and with the help and the power of the Holy Spirit, we will be able to stand firm. Hebrews 2.18 reminds us that since Jesus himself was tempted in that which he was, in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And then in Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one, meaning Jesus, who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was human like us, with one great exception. He knew no sin. He was perfect. Only Jesus, the sinless and infinite God-man, was qualified to serve as that spotless, unblemished sacrifice for the sins of the world. Only he who knew no sin could become sin and die in our place, thereby satisfying the wrath of God against man. But he rose again. He rose victoriously, conquering sin and death and making a way for us to know God personally and really live, not just eternally, but abundantly here on earth. A man who really lived was a man named William Borden. Some of you may be familiar with his story. You probably recognize the last name from, from the milk cartons. William Borden was born in the late 1800s as the heir to the Borden Dairy Fortune. He graduated from high school in Chicago and planned to attend Yale. But before starting college, his parents sent him on a cruise around the world. And upon seeing other cultures and the masses of unsaved people, he wrote a letter to his mother and said, I think God is calling me to be a missionary. But by the end of the trip, he wrote again, I know God is calling me to be a missionary. William's friends and his father thought he was throwing his life away by choosing the life of a missionary. William went on to Yale, and, and while there, he wrote in his journey, in his journal, 
He wrote this in his journal. Say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. And it was there that he made the decision to renounce his fortune in favor of missions. And he then wrote two words on the first page of his Bible. No reserves. William decided that he was going to live by faith and trust God for all the things in his life. So he went from Yale to Princeton Seminary. And during his time at Princeton, he attended this conference in Nashville. It was a missions conference. And he learned about the great number of Muslims in China. And God gave him a heart to reach the Kansu people, an unreached people group in China. These people had never heard the name of Christ. And William was determined to fulfill God's call upon his life. But his father was so disappointed in William that he told him, William, you've gone too far and you will never be allowed to work in the family company again. William opened up his Bible once again and wrote two more words on the first page. No retreats. No reserves. No retreats. William set sail for China in December 1912, 101 years ago this month. But before getting to China, William stopped first in Egypt in order to study the Arabic language so that he would be better equipped to work with the Muslims in China. But while in Egypt, William contracted spinal meningitis and William Borden died four months later at the age of 25. And he was buried there in Cairo. One of William's college friends received his Bible after William's death and the friend opened it to that first page and saw those words that William had written. No reserves, no retreats. Many of observers of, of William's life were probably inclined to think that his life had been a waste. He hadn't made a very good trade-off. He left behind unimaginable wealth in order to become a missionary and he never even reached the mission field. But his life wasn't a waste. One person wrote about Borden. He not only gave away his wealth, but himself in a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. He never wavered or slipped. His faith had stood firm. And William's friend who, who received William's Bible saw that William had written two more words in his Bible just before his death. No regrets. No reserves. No retreats. No regrets. His life wasn't a waste. His sacrifice for the sake of the gospel sparked a spiritual revival at Yale and the news of his death spread around the world. His commitment, his sacrifice for Christ, and those three phrases that he wrote in his Bible inspired thousands 
to answer the call to missions. The author, Randy Alcorn, talks about visiting Cairo, Egypt, a few years ago, and some missionary friends picked him up and, and took him to this graveyard that was covered with overgrown grass, and it was a cemetery for American missionaries, and they came upon a faded, sun-scorched tombstone that read, William Borden, 1887 to 1913. Alcorn then talks about how his missionary friends took him straight from there to the Egyptian National Museum to see the King Tut exhibit. King Tut was also a young man, 17 years old when he died, and then he was buried with solid gold chariots and thousands of gold artifacts. His gold coffin was found within gold tombs inside of gold tombs. He was buried with so much gold because the ancient Egyptians believed in an afterlife where you could take your earthly treasures with you. And Randy Alcorn, the author, remarks on what a great contrast exists between these two graves. King Tut's tomb glitters with unbelievable wealth. And William Borden's grave is hidden off of a back alley on a dusty street littered with garbage. But where are these two men now? One who called himself king tried to hold on to his great riches only to find himself empty-handed in the misery of a Christless eternity. The other gave away his wealth and his life in service to the one true king and is now enjoying everlasting riches in the presence of the Lord. If you go visit William Borden's gravestone in, in Cairo today, you will see these words engraved on it. A man in Christ, he arose and forsook all and followed him. Kindly affectioned with brotherly love, fervent in spirit serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, instant in prayer, communicating to the necessity of saints, in honor preferring others, apart for, from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. He really lived, and such a life, such living, is only possible through Jesus. A major theme in, in Paul's letters to these Thessalonians is the return of Christ. Paul wants us to be prepared to stand before Jesus one day with confidence. Are you ready for that day? If you have come to Christ by faith, then you are ready. But do you long for that day? And not just long for it when overwhelmed by pain or sorrow or disappointment, but when life returns to normal, do you still have that longing prayer, come, Lord Jesus? To really live is to live with that day in mind. We really live 
by standing firm in our faith, by being joyful, thankful people, by being devoted to a regular discipline of prayer and worship and ministering to the needs and spiritual well-being of others, by overflowing in a supernatural love, and by living a life of holiness and purity before God. The kind of love with no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. Let's pray. Father God, we know that in this life we will have troubles. Your son Jesus told us so. But we know that the suffering of this present age is just for a time, just for a season. Father, sometimes we slip up. Sometimes we falter. Sometimes we fall. But we know that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And we can make things right with you. Help us to do that at the end of this year. We read in in 1 Peter 5 that after we have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called us to eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, strengthen, and establish us. And when that chief shepherd, Jesus, appears, we will receive that unfading crown of glory. Father, until that day, help us to really live a life devoted to you. Help us to really live in 2014 a life of no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. A life that is only possible through Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.